This is the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. Prepare to get caffeinated. All right. Well, welcome back. Second time now. Uh, well, I guess first time on the Black Rifle Coffee Podcast. That's true. We've changed the name. Uh, but a lot has happened since the first time you came on. Been almost That's a true. Year, I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty close. Joining us, Mr. Tim Parlatori, attorney at law, attorney at his own firm. You just run the show over there. I do. <laughs> how many, how many, how many lawyers are you up to? We got uh, about 35 now. You know, we're, we're about to announce the hiring of another one uh, probably later this week, early next week. So yeah, we're, we're constantly growing. And actually we just got named last week to the military times best for vets, uh, you know, employers. So the <laughs> oh, only great. law firm they selected for that, apparently the apparently law firms aren't known for being good places for veterans to work. <laughs> well, uh, you also are a law firm that has little to no overhead. That's true. Well, explain that to our audience, like <laughs> your business model that is, that is, you know, somewhat new and working well. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're entirely cloud-based, so we don't maintain any, any offices anywhere. Um, you know, um, my address says One World Trade Center, 85th floor, which is, you know, what this view behind me looks like. Uh, but the reality is that this is a green screen and everybody works remotely. So we save on all that overhead. You know, all these other law firms that charge $8,000 an hour because they have that big fancy office that they have to pay for. And in getting rid of all that, we can pass that savings down to the client and be a much more economic choice. And it also lets me hire a whole bunch of attorneys that other firms wouldn't even consider. So about a third of my people are actually married to active duty military. And, you know, they're all over the world. I have people in Japan and Korea uh, because, you know, we're licensed as attorneys by the states. And if DOD tells your spouse to go live in a different state from where your license is, traditionally for these uh, attorneys, that means can't get work. Yeah. So with me, you know, I have people that are telecommuting you know, literally from around the world. Well, I mean, you gotta, like, when you break down kind of the mechanics of what it would be like if you were to have a big firm office in Virginia Beach or, or in yeah. New York, like, like, first off, if, if you're in New York or New York City, no matter where you put that office, everyone's going to be commuting one way or another. Right. So, when you take a look at productivity in in a paralegal, in lawyers, you know, a, a majority of your job is paperwork. You're yeah. reading, you're writing. So focus has to be on the reading and writing. Well, when you're commuting, sitting in traffic for an hour every morning, like, what does that do to productivity once you get it? So once when you finally get your car parked, when you're finally in the elevator and you're finally walking into your office at nine in the morning, you know, that's even late right there. Yeah. If you're on the East coast rolling in at nine, like, so, so when you finally sit down, 
you're not in a good mood at all because you've just been in traffic for an hour. Just getting to your workplace has been this, this giant ordeal. And now to get to work. So, I mean, when you, when you start thinking about taking a law office and making it digital, it just seems like it works better that way because it gives everyone the focus and the time. Yeah, it's so much better. When you look at how these big law offices are really set up, they're built on 1950s technology because, you know, back then, you know, first of all, all your lawyers, they didn't know how to type. So you have the lawyers that have the window offices and then just in for those, you have all the secretarial stations because all the lawyers need to have their private secretary that they can dictate everything to. That was just out of the type, so you can get rid of that. Then you have two floors of the building that are set aside to be the law library. And so you have a whole you know, army of law librarians and paralegals because all of your research is in books. Yeah. Since that moved to LexisNexis, Westlaw, and now they have even more options, that's all gone. Then you have all the file storage because everything is in paper, all of your you know, motions and complaints and everything. So you have these you know, just massive dead trees yeah. worth of uh, worth of files. That's all gone too because that's all on the on the computer. It's all PDFs. So literally everything that they used to do in that massive office at the tune of million dollars a month in rent, I could just do on my laptop sitting at a diner with a hotspot. Yeah. I mean, it, that's where I'm, I'm getting at with that message too. Like you yeah. just defining just the space that was needed. I mean, all, all I, I can go off of is, you know, popular uh, law office TV. But I do, <laughs> when I think about the, the show Suits, like I remember... Yeah. The first two seasons was him in the library doing the research and everything like that. And really, like, for people that have never been involved in any sort of, you know, had a, a majority of people never experienced the judicial system. Right. Like, unless you're a shitbag constantly getting messed up in the criminal <laughs> system or you have happened to uh, my repeat clients <laughs> of, uh, of, like, going to civil court and things like that. So... When a lawyer is practicing or, or when they are, are working on their case, the, a way for you to find angles to win a case is to look at historical cases, correct? Can you explain yeah. a little bit about why yeah. a law office would need this massive library? So the law is really developed in, in two ways. You know, one is that Congress or the state legislatures will write statutes. But the other way is that the courts, they interpret those statutes based on, you know, different cases that come up. And so they create all these, um, you know, exceptions to the rule and everything else. So you end up with the statutory law and the common law. And so in that, you have to go kind of go back and say, how have courts applied it in the past in similar uh, circumstances? And so you have to go through, you know, all these different cases and find, Sometimes you find the exact same judge that has ruled a certain way in a certain case and said, so now I could take that and say to the judge, hey, remember two years ago, this is how you ruled on it? Well, my client's exactly the same. Uh, and, you know, the Supreme Court um, is obviously the highest court where they do all of the precedents. So you, you have to go through all of those, which you know, was a bear back when you had it on papers because you had to go through all the indexes and how to find this stuff. 
Now it's so simple because now I can just put the search terms into the computer and I can find all the different cases that have, you know, similar fact patterns and I can narrow the search by certain terms. And even in the past couple of years, they've added uh, different artificial intelligence to where I can actually take my papers for my case, load it up, and it will analyze the papers for me and spit back, hey, here are some of the issues that you need to look at, and here are a bunch of the cases. So, you know, something that 20 years ago, you know, would have taken, you know, an army of people months to figure out, we can do in seconds now. And, and, and really, it all comes down to who can convince the judge. Well, now, that's the one part that you can't digitize, is, yes. is it... You can have all the law and all the research that you want, but at the end of the day, somebody has to stand in front of the judge or jury and actually tell the story and explain why this fits with that fact pattern. And oftentimes, you have to explain to a judge why they should care. You know, what, why does it matter? Well, I've seen that in some of the things that we've done together, Bert, where you you caveat your opening statement with, with that, uh, yeah. here's why. Here's why this. I'm even going to go down this road. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, well, yeah, it's very interesting. I've always wondered, you know, because from the outside looking in, you kind of have a double-edged sword with this, with with the way that we have this set up. Is on one hand, you can say no case is ever the same. Like everything's circumstantial. Everything, everything has different circumstances. Yeah. So, so when you're pulling up something old and saying, well, you should decide this way because somebody else decided that way 10 years ago, that's, that doesn't give me any, any good feelings because 10 years ago, things were different. 20 years ago, you know, there was no, so there really wasn't the internet. There was no social media. It's the same, it's the same arguments as, as, you know, the second amendment and the first amendment, you know, the second amendment saying, Hey, they didn't, they didn't include machine guns in the second amendment. Well, you're saying, okay, well, if that's the case, the first amendment didn't list out computers, the internet and, and social media. <laughs> yeah. But it's true. I mean, sometimes I'm shocked sometimes when you look back and see how far back some of the cases that you cite are. And, you know, like one of my favorites is uh, the Boston Massacre trial. And, you know, which is obviously before this country was even founded. Uh, But there were things that happened in that trial that are still part of U.S. law today. You know, one, one of the things was that they they brought out a dying declaration where somebody who was about to die from their wounds made a statement about about that, and they brought that into court because they said that since he was about to die, he had no reason to lie, and therefore that was admissible. Ordinarily, you'd say, okay, he said it out of court, it's hearsay, it's inadmissible. The rule that they created at that trial there is still true today, and they follow it today. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you have just concluded a very, very high-profile case, uh, especially in our community. You know, yeah. Everybody in the last few months has been following Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. Uh, yeah. And you represented him uh, in this from, from the get-go. So, I mean, uh, I, I imagine a lot of what happened was your strategy. Uh, and, and by all means, walk us through this whole thing. Everybody wants to know. Uh, it seems like things... 
things came out good for him. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, we had a team uh, that worked on this case, but yeah, in this situation, he made a series of videos uh, and he was pretty critical of the administration. Well, to be clear, he was critical of the senior Pentagon leadership. He actually, interestingly, stayed away from all the elected civilian leadership. Uh, yes, his first video, uh, which aired, I want to say, the third day after the official yeah. Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, it happened and, right after the explosion at Abbey Gate. Right, right after the, the, Mar- the Marines and the uh, soldiers were killed. So he made a video that he posted to his personal Facebook, essentially calling for accountability in right. senior leaders, general officers, everybody like that. And I'll, I'll let you take Yeah. And, you know, the big question that he was saying was President Biden had just gone on to an interview and he said, the reason we did it in Kabul and we abandoned Bagram Air Base was because that's what the military told me. That's what all the generals uh, told me to do. So I followed their advice. And anybody that's been there that knows the setup of Bagram versus the setup of the airport in, in Kabul knows it's much better to do have done this from Bagram. And so he was asking the question everybody was asking, why? You know, did any of you generals sit here and say, hey, hey, Mr. President, this is a bad idea? You know, maybe, maybe we should conduct this thing from a more defensible position. And if we had, those 13 service members wouldn't have been killed. So that was the question that he asked. And it, it got a lot of traction. And it kind of, you know, spiraled from that first video. But a lot of the questions he asked in that first video were questions that everybody else was thinking. Questions that a few weeks later, members of Congress from both parties were asking to the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But the reaction that he got from the Marine Corps, he knew that he was going to face backlash for this because, you know, going back to all those constitutional rights, the First Amendment is more limited if you're in the military. Um, and it, it's not that you don't have a First Amendment right. It's that as a condition of your employment, when you sign an enlistment contract or you accept the commission, you're agreeing to forego certain rights. And so one of those rights is the ability to get on Facebook and say bad things about the generals. So he expected to be relieved. He expected to you know, face some type of you know, disciplinary action for it. Well, let's also too. The circulation was I I caught it when it when it had about six hundred shares right yeah. in the ring, you know, because I I'm scouring the internet every day anyway. That's right. kind of what I do. Uh, later that day, I saw it. It was at thirty five thousand shares. Like, you, you, how much did this video circulate to before they finally put the kibosh on it? Like, do you know what the 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 resting number was? So, well, they never took it down. Oh, okay. It, it was never taken down um, because the Marine Corps doesn't control his personal Facebook. But they initially called him up and they said, okay, well, you know, we're going to do an investigation. You're not going to get relieved. And then a few hours later, they called him in and said, you're getting relieved. So, um, and it's, it's funny when you talk about seeing it right from the inception with a small number. I saw it around that same time too, because a bunch of people started sending it to me saying, hey, Tim, Check this out. This guy may need you. Yeah, you sent me the link this morning. This yeah. morning. Uh, did you see this? And I said, oh, yeah. Eddie's been talking to me about it. Yeah. 
So, but he wasn't expecting, you know, kind of the manner in which they treated him. And, you know, really. Well, okay. So first video goes out. Uh, He gets, he gets told there's going to be an investigation. I remember the original post is like, this is going to get me fired, but I'm willing to give up my 18 years of service retirement. If it means, you know, I can't, I can't let my integrity and values just be thrown out the window. You know, he, he had very good points. His points are, you can't spend, you know, Tell us our entire careers in the military that you have to be like this, and you 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 are responsible for everything, and we'll fry you if you if 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 you are caught doing anything crazy, and then and then you have to sit back and watch as that rule doesn't apply to everybody over oh five oh six and above. I mean, we're right. even seeing it right now with the Green Beret oh six up in Washington State that was that was, you know, had a standoff with police, had kidnapped his ex-wife, is still being afforded the, the a retirement. <laughs> All as they're kicking out guys that have had distinguished careers for refusing to get a vaccination. Like, there's no consistency with their way of thinking. And I think that's where Lieutenant Colonel Scheller's frustration stemmed. Yeah. What the hell are you guys doing? And the key thing here is our withdrawal from Afghanistan, you know, we already had a test run of this. You know, we withdrew from Iraq. We knew how well that went. And, you know, we did that poorly. ISIS took over. We had to go back in and retake the territory from ISIS. And then the exact same people do the exact same thing all over again. And you got to sit there and say, well, wait a minute. This is predictable. This is very predictable because we just saw this happen in Iraq. So no one's being different. If that happened then, nobody was held accountable then. A few years later, we do the exact same thing in Afghanistan. Nobody's held accountable again. And people, American service members died as a result. And so the question Stu had, which a lot of us have, is if there's still no accountability, What's next? You know, if you're not, you're not going to learn from Iraq. You're not going to learn from Afghanistan. So, how many more people are going to die yeah. the next time? Yeah, but it's also it's just with the whole why. Like, why did 13 more have like? And it's like, and and if none of you are going to be, oh, we made a bad decision. Oh, we didn't listen. Like, then this is just trash. It's all right. trash. No one's. Like, why hasn't anybody been fired? Why hasn't anybody been relieved? Why, where, where is all this at? Like, like, that's my biggest frustration with a lot of this is we don't fire anybody. We don't go, wow, you were not good at that. You're no, we did. We we did fire somebody and we did hold somebody accountable. Stu Scheller. (laughs) You know, one of the things I said to the judge during the closing arguments of that case, which is true. We hold a lance corporal more accountable for losing a weapon than a general for losing a war. Yes. And, and it's absolutely true. I, I don't know where that comes from. Or, or I mean, is it, is it too hard well, for us to? The, those in charge don't want to be held accountable, obviously. Well, and their, their peers are the people that would be holding them accountable. Well, and that's the interesting thing is, let's say... We had, let's say that somebody said, okay, yes, General Milley, you screwed this up. We're going to charge you with 13 counts of criminally negligent homicide. 
he's a general. He's subject to UCMJ, so he'd be he'd be tried in a court martial. So first of all, who's the convening authority? The military, the DOD. No, 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 but it has to be a commander. It has to be a very specific oh. commander. Who is oh. his commander? He's the top guy. The president or the or the the secretary of defense. Secretary of defense, but the secretary of defense is a witness because he was actually in the room when they discussed. Yeah, let's let. Uh, and it was his plans. Right. So the secretary of defense is a witness. He's he's disqualified. So then it goes up to the president. But the president was also a witness. He was in the room. So he he's disqualified. You then kind of go down the line of presidential succession. And so maybe you have Nancy Pelosi can be the convening authority at that point. And even if you can get to that point, then you got to go and say, okay, now we got to pick a jury. We have to find eight officers who are going to be fair and impartial, don't know the defendant, that are of equal and greater rank. So find me eight four-star generals, active duty four-star generals who outrank the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You know? It's an effective immunity. (laughs) Because the possibility of trying any of these people is zero. I don't even get a judge. I mean, the, there's there's no military judge that outranks any of these generals. Yeah. You know, the, I don't think there's even a, a military JAG in any branch of service that's above a two or three star. So, so you can't have a judge. We found a loophole. <laughs> Using our own system and our own structure, we found how you can be invincible. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So back to Stu. Stu puts his original video out. He says in he says in the in the in the copy in the text there that this is probably going to get me fired. He gets a phone call and then he puts in a second video. Yeah. All right. What was the second video? So the second video um, was the beginning of a um, a downward spiral, um, or what he called an emotional roller coaster uh, that really. And and you can't just simply separate them out because at this point there's there's videos, there's written posts and, and everything. And they really do take, as his life starts to be torn apart by the Marine Corps and his family's torn apart and everything else, he goes through a an emotional um, process. And, and one that honestly is probably not that different from that that a lot of other veterans went through during that time period. But the difference is he did it very publicly. And so, you know, the judge, the judge even said that when he went back and looked at the videos during the trial, that what he saw was he saw a Marine in pain. And so that's what you saw in that second video. And there was anger. There was definitely anger. And he was saying that we need to change the system. Um, you know, the prosecutors later tried to link him to January 6th and saying that he's some type of insurrectionist. Um, but is that everybody's go to? <laughs> it, it seems to be. And, but he's not talking about any violent overthrow of the government. What he was talking about is we need new leadership. You know, we need new leadership from the general officers. We need new leadership on the elected side. And, we need a new generation of people to to run for Congress. Uh, we need a new generation of officers to get promoted so we can get this old core of generals out. Um, 
we need to have a revolution in a, in a constitutional manner. And that was the funny thing is that the prosecutors, they they quoted him in their papers and they said he's calling for a revolution. And they quoted him about, you know, we need a revolution. And they cut off the end of the quote, which says in a constitutional manner. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I mean, that's another frustrating thing for anybody that has never been involved in in the judicial system is, you know, this is theater and it's dirty theater. Yeah. Like, I don't know why we haven't revisited some of these procedures because that should be slapped. Like if an attorney does something like that, a prosecution does something like that, trying to sway the the jurors or, or the judge by purposely omitting Right. Like you shouldn't be allowed to practice law. Right. Right. It's you've heard me talk about this before. This is you know, a big thing for me is that all these prosecutors, they they're so focused on winning. Yeah. And yet the ethical rules say that for a prosecutor, your goal is not to win. You're not supposed to win as a prosecutor. You're supposed to seek justice only. Yeah. If you're not seeking justice, you're acting unethically. And so when they do these dirty tricks. I mean, I had I had the most incredible conversation with the prosecutor in this case. Actually, not the prosecutor in this case, the lead prosecutor of the entire United States Marine Corps who got sent down to participate in this case. And we had a we had a complaint because they had been illegally leaking documents to task and purpose. They illegally leaked a whole investigative file, which includes sections of his medical records, his psychological records. Yep. Yep. We know about this. And I, and I'm sitting there on the phone and I'm saying to this prosecutor, there are, you know, we need to have discovery. We need to know who had access to this. We need to know who possibly, you know, leaked this. And the guy keeps saying, well, you know, you're making, you're making a gross assumption here. (laughs) Well, what gross assumption am I making? Well, you're assuming that it was leaked by the government. Who else like, has it? Like, okay, pal. How else? I mean, we're talking about a Marine Corps record. We're talking about a Marine Corps investigation. Who other than the Marine Corps could have leaked it? He says, well, I don't know. It could have been the defense. He, this is when he didn't know that you were the defense. No, he knew I was the defense. Oh, okay. he, all the defense attorneys are on the phone call here. And... Which which was a whole separate thing that he couldn't figure out which voice was which. So he was making us, you know, always say, say your name, say your name. I'm like, do you realize my co-counsel has a deep Texas accent? You know, there's nobody that's that's going to So I just kept like, Nick, this is Tim. I am the defense attorney. You're telling me I'm making a gross assumption that I didn't leak it. (laughs) Are you stupid? (laughs) <laughs> like seriously and yes i i asked them that very directly like, are you because they need they need this we need to yeah. know that guy is like like these are the people that you need to be up their ass over like this is stupidity this is the lead prosecutor for the entire United States Marine Corps, the guy who oversees all prosecutions in the entire Marine Corps. What rank is this dude? A lieutenant colonel. God, why? 
How oh, and then, and then the funny thing is being good at his job. Uh, the funny thing is, I then did a little throwaway question. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, let me ask you a question, Nick. Do you know anything about uh, about how these documents got leaked? Ooh, that's a very long pause there, Nick. <laughs> I would have expected you to answer quick more quickly than that if you didn't know. <laughs> uh, well, are they ever going to address that, or is that just a we're 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 going to pretend it didn't happen? No, well, they have assigned somebody to investigate it. Um, they did <laughs> assign somebody to investigate it. They, they did assign somebody to investigate. I I spoke with them, gave them all the information I could uh, to help them. You know, of course, they did. And it, it's they assigned it to a lieutenant colonel. Um, you know, which part of the problem with that is I'm sitting there like I feel bad for you because your suspect list probably has stars on it. Yeah. Um, you know, they should have they should have assigned it maybe to a civilian agency, whether the inspector general or exactly something like that, or another service. Yeah, that and that's the interesting thing is you have all of these military proceedings where everybody is in the same service and the defense attorney is worried that their next job they could be working for the prosecutor, they could be working for the judge. And so everybody has this inherent conflict of interest right from the inception, just based on I don't know what my next assignment is. And what I love is whenever you can, I try and ask, you know, for a specific, you know, please assign an Air Force attorney to this case. Because as much as the Navy and Marine Corps attorneys, you know, it's it's bad for their career to attack Navy and Marine Corps prosecutors. In the Air Force, they consider attacking the Navy to be career enhancing. <laughs> so. That's good. <laughs> so, so I try and get people from cross service because it's it's such an incestuous thing. Well, there's going to be no out. There's no justice at this point. No, really. We we assigned a lower lower ranking investigator to find out who was do, doing things that are illegal in the Marine Corps, but we we assigned one of the the underlings to go find it. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, look, it's it's not that difficult of an investigation. And hopefully, as long as they give him access to it, he should be able to figure it out. It's not many people had access to the documents. It only went to one news media outlet. You know, I, I know exactly the reporter it went to. So you could just figure out, you know, pull the uh pull the phone records, see who see who talked to him. It's not that difficult yeah. to figure out. Interestingly, the same outlet that it was leaked to then just recently uh, published an op-ed uh, crying about how the Marine Corps refused to give them documents on this case. Well, it's too bad that they just fucking slept and lost on this one because I believe Coffee or Die was the one that was uh, throwing all the good stuff out for it. Coffee or Die definitely had some of the most in-depth and accurate articles in this case. That's you know, awesome. I, I, I got to say that that publication... They do good work. <laughs> hey, Marty Scotland is 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 the best in class. Yeah, uh, and it shows. Yeah, so uh, he's running a good show. All right. Well, as you as this thing gets put onto your lap, how did you come up with the strategy of the angle that you guys took? Because you you told him get you know get arrested, spend your time. I, 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 unpack that. For so. 
and, and some of this happened before I came into the case. Um, but as he went through this downward spiral, he eventually got to the point where he was being told, hey, you know, they want to put you in jail. And so he said, okay, have the MPs pick me up Monday morning. I'm ready to go to jail. And he put that out in, in a post. Puts that out over the weekend. Of course, they come Monday morning as as scheduled to pick him up, put him in jail. And then later they're in front of a judge saying he must be detained because we're afraid that he's going to run away. Dude, he scheduled his own arrest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, if he knew they were coming at nine o'clock on Monday morning, he should have run away at eight o'clock on Monday morning. Um, and because they were keeping him and that was how you got him out was you guys aren't keeping him for any real reason. Right. Right. And they didn't want to have that hearing. They, they did really? not want to have that. They didn't want to have the hearing on detention and they were fighting really hard to keep it as a closed star chamber type of, uh, of hearing. They didn't want the media involved in it. And eventually it was kind of a push. And, and again, this was the, uh, you know, the other members of the team that, that did this, um, you know, they pushed to have it as a public hearing and then they got the plea deal. And so there were certainly contours of the plea deal that had to be worked out, but ultimately he agreed to plead guilty to the full freight of everything, which he was always willing to do uh, as long as they only charged him with things that he actually did. Yes. And so... We then went into pre preparing for a sentencing hearing where really what it was was a show of what he said and his demand for accountability. He's going to demonstrate to the world what accountability looks like because he's going to take it himself. And while doing it, we will kind of re-go over the same demands for accountability and all of the factors that led him to this point. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you're not supposed to talk about this stuff, but in a guilty plea and in sentencing, you have to explain to the judge, why did you do these things? Yeah. And so Stu was able to get up there and the judge asked him, you know, why did, why do you think you're guilty? I think I'm guilty because the senior military leadership completely screwed this up, leading to the needless deaths of U.S. service members. And I'm guilty for saying that out loud. <laughs> and and so we had a full a full hearing on that. And, you know, we had witnesses testify. Three members of Congress came down you know, to testify about it, about how the questions he's asking are the questions that everybody's asking. American public wants to know. Yeah. And and here's the other thing is that for all of the different complaints that the prosecutors had, he shouldn't have said it. He shouldn't have posted it. He shouldn't have keep, kept posting about it. There's one thing that's notably missing from all of their arguments and documents and charges. They never said anything he said wasn't true. Wow. That's going to be an interesting prosecution during that time. Oh, it was the prosecutor assigned to the case was put into a very interesting tight spot of how do you prosecute this thing? And then, of course, D.C. sent the lead prosecutor, oh, the entire Marine Corps, down to he, sit next to him. Yeah. If he is pleading guilty, what is the prosecutor actually doing in this situation? 
trying to get the most, trying to get a larger punishment out of them. But and that's it, not the prosecutor's job. <laughs> but that's the thing. In this case, punishment wasn't about justice. Punishment was about the generals being angry at him. Exactly. This is all just retribution. Yeah, exactly. You called me out, so I'm going to make you hurt. Right. They wanted to take $30,000 from him. Um, you know, obviously they already put him in jail, you know, for nine days uh, on a case that, you know, nobody ever goes to jail for this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and they also wanted to make sure that they made a show about, you know, that the Marine Corps was doing the right thing and we're holding them accountable and good order and discipline and no, you know, they, rah, they rah, rah, make sure that none of you ever get out of line and do the same thing. They unraveled discipline. They they just showed their cards that you get special treatment if you're a certain rank and a certain person. Yeah. They, if anything, they just demolished the 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 order and makeup that the military is built on by doing by doing this. Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things at the end of the case, a letter of reprimand is mandatory. Uh, with these types of cases. And so, you know, the judge said, you know, I don't have any discretion. And the judge says, I'm not going to write it. It'll be written by somebody else. I don't know who. And as we walked out of the courthouse, I went over to the prosecutors and I said, hey, guys, who's going to write the letter? Uh, I, I don't know. You guys are going to have an interesting time figuring this thing out because since you've got the generals listing themselves as victims, Who's going to write it and what are they going to say? Is it going to be one of those generals? Is he going to say, how dare you demand that I be held accountable for anything I do? I'm <laughs> reprimanding you for demanding that I be held to the same standard that you are. <laughs> this will be interesting. And sure enough, a few weeks later, we got the letter and it was signed by General Alford, one of the so-called victims in this case where he goes through this whole thing saying you have damaged the Marine Corps and you are, you're narcissistic. And then of course, closing it saying you're allowed to submit a rebuttal to this, but in your rebuttal, you're not allowed to state your opinion and you must use temperate language and you must not impugn the motives of others. After he just called him a narcissist and said that he no, damaged no, that's somebody. what I'm saying. Why? Yeah. So essentially, this general used the LOR for him to like throw his stones back. Yeah, yeah. It, it was the ability for him to you know just tell him what for, and it was it was ridiculous. It, the whole letter just showed that this was all about the general's bruised ego. Read that? Do you have it? Yeah. Hold on a second. Let me read read the good stuff out of it. <laughs> Give me, give me a minute. Let me pull it up. But. Oh yeah, and this is what this is what everybody needs to hear. They need to they need to hear and see this. That you know, one of the you know the the great parts of this was the um, his rebuttal, because since we're not allowed to state his opinion, yeah, and and we're we have to use temperate language and everything. Um, there, I got it now. <laughs> what we did was we instead quoted the judge. Oh. All right. So this is, let me give you the good, the good paragraph from General Alfred's letter here. Uh, 
you have violated your solemn oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Mm-hmm. Your actions have harmed good order and discipline within the service, as well as publicly discredited the U.S. Marine Corps. Your narcissistic acts can only serve can serve only to erode the rule of law. You have failed in your duties to your command, fellow Marines, the U.S. Marine Corps, and the laws and traditions governing the military service. For these reasons, you are hereby reprimanded. One of the initial things I thought reading this is discredited the Marine Corps. No, he didn't discredit the Marine Corps at all. He just discredited a few Marine Corps generals. Yeah, and how I mean, arrog- how arrogant and narcissistic is it for some general to sit there and believe that they are the Marine Corps? Well, uh, there's there's a few sides to this. Like, yeah. yes, the statement where he says that the the statement that the general makes that he says that Stu damaged the 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 chain of command and 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 makeup of the leadership that is true. When you bitch down, when yeah, but. This is a circumstance where he was a sacrificial lamb coming out and saying, wait a minute, you guys can't just sit back and let this go. Like, because this is bullshit. Everybody here knows it's bullshit. So it's like, yeah, he had, he had to be the sacrifice in order to bring light to this. And that's, that's the thing is, is it's necessary now to get, things out on the airwaves for in order for 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 attention to be brought on subjects that would have just been swept under the rug like it's 98 percent of these things that that go about even with you know the how how eddie's situation derailed all because people were mad it's all ego it was all ego driven and oh i want this you know it all it all stemmed from Somebody personally wanting to get a win or get right. a big a big slam dunk, and then here is how this all goes. But it wasn't until mass attention is brought to something, and that's that's what saved Eddie. Yeah. Hands down, was was getting attention to the reality of the case. Like, because had had they just shut up and hoped the system worked the way it's supposed to, it would have not, and he would be in jail right now. And that, that's what they always tell everybody. Just trust the system. You know, just, just just trust the system. Let the investigation play out. You know, with Eddie's case, that began with the commanders. They they felt that the SEAL teams had lost a uh, sense of discipline. And so they wanted to reinstill that good order and discipline. And Eddie came up as, as an opportunity. You know, like here's an opportunity we can sacrifice him. Yeah, he's a he's a very popular, well-known operator. We can we can sacrifice him on the altar of good order and discipline as an example to all. And the thing that they failed to do in that circumstance is let's first make sure that the facts support it. Let's first make sure that there's a case here. I mean, that would have been the first thing to do. But just If you've seen any of the recordings with the NCIS, like they were begging, begging for something like you're like planting. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> I, I had I had some I had some detectives and uh, real criminal investigators watch some of those tapes. Yeah, and they were laughing. I mean, 
you know, it was it was sad because somebody's life was on the line. But at the same time, it was humorous for all for all these real criminal investigators at the the way that these interviews were conducted because they were just so horrible. Well, I, because I, I and you know, we've seen this a number of times. The military special investigative service they cheat every which way. Whereas on the civilian side, they do things. By the law. Sometimes. Uh, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> uh, for the most part. But I've seen a lot of cheating. With, oh, yeah. With NCIS. And well, you got to remember something. CID and OSI. You, you got to remember something. What is the primary job qualification to join NCIS? <laughs> Nothing. Like, what is it? No, it, it this, is, this is true. To become an NCIS agent, you have to go on you know, the website, USA Jobs and upload your resume and you check all the different federal jobs that you'd like to apply to. And, you know, as with most people that they say, Hey, I want to become a federal investigator. They're going to go on there. They're going to check FBI, DEA, ATF, all these agencies, every special agent job available. So the only way that you get selected for NCIS is you first have to be rejected by the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, HSI. Every other real agency has to reject you before you can get that far down the list to where NCIS says yes. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but they have a nice TV show. <laughs> they, they, they very much do. Uh. So did you help author Stu's rebuttal? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and you guys used the judge's words. Correct. Yeah, we since since we couldn't have him state his opinion. Yeah. Um we actually wrote in here. Um you directed that quote, my opinion shall not be expressed nor the motives of others be impugned. Thus I will do my best to respond without stating any personal opinions. Instead, I'll, re I'll rely on the opinions and statements of the military judge who presided over my court-martial. Since neither training command nor the School of Infantry had any military leadership present at my trial, other than the prosecutors, I'll outline the relevant sections uh, for you so you can understand the context. And then we just went through all of the different uh, things. Um, I object to the characterizations made. They do not accurately reflect my actions or my character. You characterize me as narcissistic, which implies a psychological personality disorder. I'm not narcissistic. I was not diagnosed with this condition. After the mental health screening, your command ordered me to undertake. Without <laughs> offering my personal opinions in the matter here, it is relevant to illustrate that you stated my response to the letter of reprimand shall be couched in temperate language. That should be confined to pertinent facts. Yet in your letter of reprimand, you are compelled to use the word narcissistic, which is neither temperate nor confined to pertinent facts. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, but it's disappointing. Nothing happens to these guys. No, nothing happens to these guys. You know, in here. Um in addressing the need for a command investigation, you randomly assigned your previous operations officer to be an impartial investigator. This impartial officer found it relevant to include my medical records. Those medical records in the investigative file were then leaked to a journalist from task and purpose. As the military judge noted, 
I don't know if that's true or not, but the truth is the statements went unrebutted from the government. I don't know what the government's response to that would be, but the fact is it's very disturbing. It's unfair, it's illegal, and it needs to be investigated. It creates the specter of unlawful command influence. Yeah, that's, that's a hard hitter right there. But it's like, are we going to see anything? Probably not. Yeah. Are we going to see not. anybody get in trouble for that? No. That's... So what's next for Stu then? Well, so right now he's he's still on active duty waiting for them to process his resignation. Uh, that goes up to the Secretary of the Navy who decides what his characterization of service should be. And so we're hoping that he'll give him an honorable discharge. He could give him a general under honorable conditions or theoretically he could say, no, I want to give him another than honorable discharge, which then throws the thing back for another hearing. Another court martial. Well, if it was other than honorable, it'd have to be in lieu of court martial, but you had one. It would be a, a, a board of inquiry. Oh, well. And so I can't imagine that the Secretary of the Navy or the Marine Corps really want to have another hearing with me sitting next to Stu Shell. Yeah, because all it is is going to throw the media frenzy back up into it. And it's like- exactly. Exactly. But, you know, the judge noted 17 years of exemplary service. In fact, the judge even said, reading through his fit reps, I don't think I've ever seen fit reps like this. I've never seen somebody who is consistently every single time in the top line. And so with, with a career like that, how do you give him anything other than honorable discharge? You know, because you're angry at him for what he did during the last month. Well, you know what? I feel like we don't, there's no, there's no weight or value in the guy, the guys that paid their dues. It's like, there's no weight or value in the fact that you, you have a perfect soldier and leader that came forward and said, Hey, you guys are fucking up my program that I've worked to fucking live up to. Like, and we want, we want to demolish him. Like, it's horseshit. It's something I see a lot, though, unfortunately. Well, because things I've experienced. Like, yeah. I've experienced people that outrank me that I know right away. I'm smarter than you, and I fucking know way more. Like, I actually pay attention. Like, I actually became an expert on these things. Like, I get it. Like, I get where he's coming from. You look at some of these superiors, and you're like, oh, you're dumb. That's why I love <laughs> being on the side that I am now, because there is nobody... You know, there, there's nobody standing above me that 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 that, that doesn't deserve to be there. It's not Evan's not them. As <laughs> a smart individual, yes, he is. But I, you know, it is something I see so frequently where these men and women give so much of their so, of themselves to our country. You know, they they give their youth, you know, their health. To, to the service of our country. They deploy repeatedly. They, you know, they risk death. They lose limbs. They lose friends. And in the end, because some commander gets angry at them for some minor transgression, they try and kick him out and they try and give him bad paper on the way out. The SEAL teams are the worst at this because they not only do that, but on the way out, they take their They take their tridents away and say, hey, you can go be a veteran and you're not even allowed to say you were a SEAL. 
<laughs> and it, it is this excommunication, which then, of course, you know, the effect of that is that they're not allowed to go to any SEAL reunions. They're not allowed to, you know, get any help from the Navy SEAL Foundation or anything like that. You take veterans that are already hurting, that are already, you know, have all these, you know, decade of or more of combat. You put them out on the street and you do exactly the one thing that you can to heighten the likelihood of a PTSD suicide event of give them the sense of abandonment. Yeah. And that's what these commanders do because again, it's their ego. And, you know, one thing, and you and I've mentioned, we've discussed this in the past, there's all these great organizations out there that are doing work to try and prevent veteran suicide. And they're doing great work, but it's on a limited basis because all they can do is they help the individual veteran who reaches out for help. Nobody's going to the root cause and saying, why do we have so many? You know, why do we have, you know, 22 a day up over 15% since the withdrawal from Afghanistan? Is it maybe because some of the policies of DOD? Is it maybe because we take, you know, these men and women and kick them out the door in a way that doesn't honor the service and sacrifice that they actually gave? <laughs> Are we actually increasing? I mean, I, I'd say this all the time. I've actually said this very directly to the staff judge advocate at Naval Special Warfare Command that 22 a day is not a standard that you guys should be looking to exceed. Yeah. You know, that that's not something, you know, yeah. this isn't a goal. But, yeah, and that's that's what they're trying to do. With, I mean, Stu... Stu was never suicidal throughout this process, but they kept no, telling him to say that he was. They kept trying to tell him he was. Oh God! They would call him up. They would have people call him up to tell him that he was suicidal. To tell him, don't do anything stupid. The public affairs officer puts out a public statement saying the Marine Corps is taking all necessary steps to ensure his physical safety and the physical safety of his family. Oh God! That's just a ploy. Yeah, ploy in the case. You're getting in front of something. How dare you make a public statement to implicate that somebody is suicidal and worse, homicidal, as if they're going to kill their family? It's terrible. No. A lot of shady shit going down with these people. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in and telling us the story. Uh, sure, we'll have you again not too long from now, because as you know, it never ends. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I, I wish it would end, but at the same time, this is, you know, if it did, I'd have to find another line of work, I guess. That is true. If you have military members or ex-military members that have a situation they think your eyes could help, how do they get a hold of you? Go to the website, parlatorylawgroup.com, P-A-R-L-A-T-O-R-E, lawgroup.com. Uh, there's a there's a contact us tab there. They can send us an email, and you know we can we can reach out to them and find out uh, how we can best help them. Awesome, awesome! Thanks for joining us, Tim. This was great. And, uh, All right, we'll see you again. All right, thanks for having me, Joe.
That concludes today's training. Any questions? Woo! Drum titties, boy!